Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Happy, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Neustein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Neustein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we considered Chapter 22, David's triumphant song. And in that song, David expressed his deep trust and steadfast faith in God as his salvation. Even as his enemies surrounded him, even as the waters threatened to drown him, David was sure of God's intervention and God's saving grace. And this, of course, speaks worlds to David's fundamental personality, one that is grounded in a sense of divine involvement and intervention in his life. While David's confidence and self-assurance in his own righteousness made it seem that this poem was in fact composed before the events of Bathsheba, in the aftermath of those events, we can appreciate it even more. Because life is complicated, and perhaps what David understood to be the case before the events of the crime with Bathsheba are transformed afterwards into a different conception, one in which human beings cannot rely on their own innocence and their own righteousness, but must constantly make an effort to maintain their relationship with God and keep it whole and complete. This is, of course, an impossible mission. There are moments in life when we are disconnected. There are moments in life when we fail. There are moments in life when we suffer setback. David's triumphant poem reminds us that in spite of those moments, there is a fundamental idea that our success, our triumph, and our hope are to be found in God. Chapter 23, another poem, by way of contrast, very short and concise. Ve'ele divrei David ha'achronim, these are David's final words, and they are his final words insofar as poetry is concerned in this book. These are the words of David, the son of Yishai, the words of the man raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet singer of Israel. David refers to himself in this verse as Mashiach Elokei Yaakov, the Anointed One. Remember how throughout the story of Sefer Shemuel, David would refer to Shaul as the Anointed of God and therefore would never dream of harming him in spite of the fact that Shaul attempted to kill David on multiple occasions. Shaul's kingship came to an end. And David ascended to the throne in his place. And now reflecting back on his reign, he is able to refer to himself as the anointed one of the God of Jacob, 
the one chosen to lead the people of Israel and the sweet singer of Israel as well. And of course, these two qualities, the anointed one, the leader, the warrior, the fighter on the one hand, and the sweet singer, the spiritually adept and sensitive, the emotionally profound, this unique combination characterizes David perhaps more than any other personality in the Hebrew Bible. And as I have been arguing for these final chapters, not only do they offer us some sort of summary of David's reign, but also insight into his fundamental character and personality so that we understand who he is. David goes on to say, The Spirit of God has spoken through me. The Lord of Israel says, the Rock of Israel proclaims, Moshel Ba'adam Tzadik, in verse number three, he who rules over men must be righteous. Moshel Yirat Elohim, he who rules must possess reverence and fear of God. What a profound and obvious insight to be an effective leader, to be a good leader, one must have two qualities. One is a sense of justice so that the oppression is relieved and the oppressed are freed. And the other is a sense of Yirat Elohim, reverence for God, so that no leader is above the law. And every leader should understand that they, must, they are subject to God's law as well and may not take advantage of their office and their power against their own people. And of course, this is a lesson hard learned. David relates, these are the ideals. And much of my reign, I lived up to those ideals. And sometimes during my reign, I did not reach those ideals. But without these qualities of righteousness and fear of God, Leadership is an empty promise. David goes on to say that his leadership or the leadership of any righteous ruler is like the dawn's light, like the sun that shines through the clouds, like the sunshine after the rainfall that causes the vegetation to sprout. That's a leader one who brings bounty to the people, one who brings constructive leadership such that things advance and progress and the people benefit, like the sunlight that appears through the clouds after the rains and causes the grass to sprout. That's the righteous leader. And that, says David, is my dynasty. That is the covenant that God made with me, an eternal one. For God is my salvation. And I know that my dynasty will produce that leadership. And sometimes that was the case as the book of Kings unfolds. And many times it wasn't. But David is sharing with us here an ideal vision of what a monarch should be for his people. And it stands in glaring contrast to what follows verse number 6 of chapter 23. Uvili'a'al, the base one, the coarse one, the evil one, 
is like a thorn, all of them, a thorn that cannot be extracted with a bare hand. One who attempts to extract that thorn must protect themselves with iron, must take tools that are sharp, extract that thorn and burn it, because that's the only thing that it's good for. So in contrast to the righteous ruler, who is like the rainfall, who is like the sunshine after the rainfall, who causes the grass to sprout and to grow, who brings blessing to his subjects and to his land, the evil ruler is like the thorn. And the thorn is good for only one thing, and that is ignition. Nothing starts a fire like the thorn. David says, the corrupt ruler who takes advantage of their power and abuses their subjects ultimately unleashes destruction, like the thorn igniting, burning everything in its path. So this, as it were, is the choice when we elect a leader. What sort of a leader will it be? And David says what will ultimately make the difference is what does that leader stand for? Does that leader stand for justice and righteousness? Does that leader possess reverence for God? Or is that leader in it for themselves? Ultimately, what is at stake is the destiny of the people that are led. They are the ones that will suffer the consequences of the choice of leadership. There could not be a more important lesson as David's reign winds down than that. And we have seen a number of, of leaders in Sefer Shemuel. We saw the sons of Eli, and we saw Shemuel in contrast to them. We saw Shaul, and we saw David in contrast to him. And this therefore emerges as an axiom which is true forever. Choose leaders carefully. Surrender power to that leader cautiously. Because if that leader is not inspired with righteousness and a sense of justice, if that leader doesn't understand that they themselves are subject to the law but perceive that they are above it, in the end, destruction will ensue. And with this poem, David leaves us. We will hear from him in the final chapter of Sefer Shemuel. His words are not finished. And in the beginning of the book of Kings, but insofar as some sort of a poetic testament, these are David's final words. The chapter goes on to describe Shemot HaGiborim Asher David, the names of David's mighty men. And three of them are singled out, Adino HaEtzni, who struck down 800 of the enemy in one battle. Elazar Ben Dodo, who is also counted among David's mightiest warriors. He struck down the enemy such that the people only had to help strip the corpses. Shama ben Agay, who faced down the Philistines and was able to save the stand of the lentils from their grasp, and God wrought salvation, great salvation through them. 
What is most remarkable about these three names, Adino Ha'etzni, Elazar ben Dodo, and Shama ben Agei, is that we have never heard of them before. In all of the chapters that spoke about David's exploits, David's followers, David's warriors, David's battles, these names never occurred. And therefore, in all probability, what we have now as this book is winding down is a list, the pantheon, as it were, the hall of fame of David's greatest warriors. Not surprisingly, we are going to find names on the list of David's warriors that we have never heard before to indicate that the people on the list did incredible acts of valor and courage, even though with respect to the day-to-day operation of David's monarchy, they were perhaps not as prominent. So this final list of David's warriors preserves the names of those that were most courageous and most brave. And those are the first three names, the top names on the list. Then there is another group. And this other group secures water for David. The text reports, David was in the cave of Adullam. The Philistines were encamped at Amik Rephaim. David was in the fortress, the garrison of the Philistines in Beit Lechem. And David desired and said, Mi ashkeni maim ibor beit lechem asher basha'ar, who will cause me to drink water from the cistern, the well of beit lechem, which is near the gate? And the three mighty men cut through the Philistine encampment and they drew that water from the well of Beit Lechem at the gate, and they brought that water to David, but he refused to drink them, and he poured them out to God as he said, God forbid that I should drink these waters. The blood of these men who risk their lives have secured these waters, and he did not want to drink them. These were the exploits of the three mighty men. So all of the details in this little vignette clearly indicate a much earlier period in David's reign. As I've already pointed out, the material at the end of Shemuel Bet is not arranged chronologically. This is a vignette for much earlier in David's reign. Don't forget that David was in Adulam in the first book of Samuel as a fugitive from Shaul. Don't forget that David was in the fortress, the Mitzudah, at the beginning of the second book of Samuel as he became king and the Philistines attacked. And of course, the Philistines figure prominently in this vignette as well. So essentially what we have here is a memory of a mighty exploit. David's three mighty warriors who risked their lives in order to bring him water from the cistern from the well at the gate of Beit Lechem. But of course, the whole thing was really just a test of their courage and their loyalty. Perhaps David never intended to drink the water. It was a challenge. Who can face down those Philistines and prove their courage? And these three warriors step forward. In other words, what this is actually indicating to the reader is, if you, un- if you want to understand David as a leader, 
You have to understand that the men under his command were loyal to the point of risking their lives for his sake. Such was the inspiration and the charisma that he possessed, that those whom he led before he became king and at the beginning of his reign would have done anything for him. And that, of course, speaks to David as a profoundly successful leadership figure. So again, to sort of appreciate these final moments in the book as a retrospect, clearly we have to indicate to the reader to fully understand David is to appreciate that the men that served him risked their lives and were prepared to risk their lives for his sake. The next group of mighty men is headed by Avishai, the brother of Yoav. And of course, we have heard plenty about him during the story. Avishai struck down 300 enemies in one battle. He was not as great as the top three, but he's in the next tier. Followed by Binayah ben Yehoyada, also a name that we have come across one of David's important courtiers, mentioned as well in the story of the rebellion of Avshalom. Benayahu struck down the lion in the pit on the snowy day in verse number 20, and he struck down the Egyptian and stole the spear from his, from his hand, and these were his mighty exploits. He is not counted among the top three, but he is in the second tier along with Avishai of the second group of three. And then what follows is a protracted list of 31 names headed by Asael, the brother of Yoav. And of course, Asael died much earlier in the story in the battle against Avner. So here, once again, it is clear that what is being reported in this chapter actually reflects much earlier events. The list begins with Asael, and it is a list of 31 names. Asael, Elchanan, Ben Dodo, each one of the warriors is listed along with their hometown. Chelets, Hapalti, Ira, Ben Ikesh, Hatikoi, etc., 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 and we get to the end of the list. And whose name should appear as the final name on the list? Uriah Hachiti, Uriah the Chittite, all of them were 37. So to recount, we have a list of David's mighty men headed up by a top tier of three warriors, the Hall of Famers, as it were, whose names we do not know from any other point in Sefer Shemuel. Then we have Avishai and Benayah, the second group of three. And then we have 31 names, beginning with Asael, the brother of Yoav, and concluding with Uriah the Chiti. And of course, there is one glaring omission from this list, even though he's mentioned twice, he's only mentioned indirectly. Avishai is introduced as the brother of Yoav. 
Asael is introduced as the brother of Yoav, and of course the missing name is Yoav, who would have been 37, 3, 3, and 31. And perhaps Yoav, on the one hand, cannot be left off the list being David's most gifted warrior and most central to many of the events in David's reign. He can't be left off the list. So Avishai is mentioned as the brother of Yoav. Asael is introduced as the brother of Yoav. So that we know Yoav belongs on this list, but at the same time, does he belong on the list? Having killed Avner, having killed Avshalom, having killed Amasa, and all of those acts undertaken against the wishes of his commander-in-chief, David, as much as we want to include him on the list of David's mighty men, we cannot, and therefore he is mentioned, but he is not mentioned. And at the same time, the list concludes very pointedly with Uriah HaChiti, that same Uriah who was the husband of Bathsheba, to remind us of two things. Number one, to remind us of the diabolical nature of David's crime because he didn't just kill someone's husband and take their wife, but that husband was one of his loyal warriors on the list, the top list, of his most courageous men. At the same time, the author wants to remind us pointedly how much of David's reign was actually colored by that event. So the other names on the list, we may forget. The other names on the list, we may gloss over. But to come to the end of the list and to end it with that name is to remind us that Uriah HaChiti and the events associated with him had the most profound impact on David's reign. So even as we take our leave of David as king and we appreciate his incredible powers as a leader, as a warrior, as an inspiring figure, we also are reminded of his great failure which colored his reign to such a great degree. And in fact, at the end of the day, one might say, had the greatest impact of all. As we pointed out already, from chapter 11 in the second book of Samuel, pretty much until the end of chapter 20, all of those tragic events trace their source to David and Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And so we are reminded pointedly as we get to the end of the list that that is in fact the name that stands out the most. And with this, the list concludes David's 37 mighty men. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.